Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to this clash Countdown, the podcast that for the month of October pits two horror movies with something in common in a fight to the death to see which one comes out victorious. On Monday's episode, we were spending time with the OG in 1978's Dawn of the Dead, and now we're getting up to speed. And lots of it, as Zack Snyder makes his feature debut with his retooled zombies in 2004's A Dawn of the Dead. What you wanted that? You do not want to go that way. What's that way? Officer, sir, you do not want to go that way. What's that way? It's pretty bad. What about Fort Pastor? Maybe if you had wings, the road stick with those motherfuckers that way. How do you know? We just tried. Come on. So which film will be feasting on our flesh and which will be getting a bullet to the brain? We'll know by the end of this show. So let's get it on. Welcome to this Clash of the Titles, Clash of Ween Countdown. Release the Kraken! Hello, Clash Butters. How do you think God will judge you? Well, friends, now we know. When there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. I'm Chris Tilly. And welcome to part two of this week's Clashoween Countdown as we count down to the greatest night of the year, All Hallows' Eve. And of course, coming up in this episode is the verdict as to which is better than 1978 or 2004 version of Dawn of the Dead. Uh, so, does everyone have an idea of where, which way they're voting come the end of the show? Or uh, is there still room to be convinced either way? This is a new section. Uh, yeah, I I'm, throw it out there. Sure. I'm, just, I'm, I'm just interested. Do you not like new sections? I mean, I, I you know, sometimes yeah, you sorry. mix up the format. It's, it's no, 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 sorry. Uh, yeah. Victoria. Don't be so I sexy apologize. in your bloody ways. 
Yeah, it's true. Adapt yeah, or die. Do we no, need you're to, absolutely right. I'm very sorry. Do, do we need to go any longer after you guys got over 90 minutes on Black Death? That blew my mind amazing, when right? I saw the runtime. It's amazing, <laughs> um, it? The fact that we did buy 90 minutes plus. You did a. To be fair, Vicky, I was shocked until I listened to it, and then you did quite a flawed five minutes on moisturisers, which which didn't wasn't necessary. <laughs> Poor Chris Smith. The logic was flawed. Yeah, the logic was flawed because because you 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 the fact that Chris Smith had used moisturisers plural, and the fact that people do wear a face moisturiser and then a different moisturiser on their hands made me very upset for for Chris Smith. Ah. Uh... I hadn't thought of the old hand moisturiser. I know you hadn't. You're absolutely uh, right. Chris obviously had, and yeah, Yeah. (laughs) deeply flawed. But no, I think that's a I think that's a cracking new section, Alex. And I um I do know which way I'm going this week. Um, um, unless something changes in the next hour. Oh, okay, okay, interesting. I'm I'm not going to press you for an answer, Victoria. If you really don't like this new section, Uh, Chris does. That's enough for me. But uh, if you do want to, how about you? How about you, Alex? I, I certainly know. I certainly know which way I'm voting. Yes. Yes, obviously. Fuck's mm. sake. No, 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 <laughs> not obviously. Not, no, absolutely not obviously. Uh, all right. So this is uh, part two of this week's Clashing Countdown. So uh, Chris is back, obviously, from his sojourn to Austin, Texas, which means it's the return of his regular dip into the digital mailbag to pick out a listener review. And as I said last week, thank you to everyone who takes the time to review the show. It is hugely appreciated. So Chris Tilly, a.k.a. Chris Thrilly, takes away. So this comes from Twiggy616, and um, it's like a haiku. And so I'm going to read it as it's sort of been laid out on iTunes uh, by Twiggy. It's entitled Great Output. And Twiggy writes, <laughs> you... Hold on. You made... <laughs> Stop it. All right. We've got a delay here. It's not helping. You made me think the speaker in my van was broken, but I still love you. Five stars. Oh, oh, that's when we, went, we went out in mono for about five minutes until we checked it. Yeah. Okay, good. That's lovely. Thank you very much, Twiggy. It's a, it's a, a beautiful way of illustrating a minor technical fault in a podcast. Uh, so we are very, nevertheless, very nevertheless, five stars. So we don't care. It's fine. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Romanticizing a slight screw up our end. Beautiful. Okay. Let's get into this. On Monday, Chris gave us an insight into who would win in the infamous yet-to-be-staged race between me and him as he shuffled round them all, which means today I'm faster, stronger, and more deadly in 2004's Dawn of the Dead. Let me take you on a journey. It's exactly the same as Chris's on Monday, except faster. Great. Uh, so Very then, good. No, Very good. I've got a proper one. i got a proper one because there are some differences. Here we go. After probably one of the greatest first 12 minutes in the history of cinema, loads of characters who you'd be hard-pressed to remember their names and so shall be referred to throughout this episode by the actors who played them end up trapped in a shopping mall as the world ends. Then, because the plot needs it to happen, they do absolutely batshit mad things and end up getting each other killed. Why else would a girl risk her life and everyone else's to rescue a dog that the film has gone out of its way to both verbally and visually point out is in absolutely no danger whatsoever. Ultimately, these deaths don't bother us too much because Tucker 
we never knew you. Glenn, we never knew you. Monica, we never knew you, except you had to die because you had sex. That said, it's one of the greatest remakes ever in one of the greatest zombie movies ever. It's Zack Snyder's best movie. It's 2004's Adorn of the Dead. Would you like to know a little bit about this movie? Uh, in fact, before we get to that, obviously, how, how on earth of all the films could I ever gloss over the histories with this movie section? Who am I? Um, I'd love to tell you uh, my history with this movie, but I've, I've promised Chris I'd never tell the same story again on the show, so uh, I, I, I can't. I can't. Unless, unless Chris gives me the green light to talk about being in 2004's Dawn of the Dead. Oops, started already. Uh, then I, I can't actually tell you my story. So, Chris, may I? No, I'll speak now. Um, so I saw this film um, at the cinema. I just started work in my first film job at Hot Dog. And, yeah, it was a big, lovely uh, surprise uh, at how good it was. Didn't know who Zack Snyder was. Uh, didn't like the idea of a remake of Dawn of the Dead. And, yeah, it was just it was just an awesome uh, experience. I haven't watched it since. I will say that um, because it doesn't feel like a film you need to watch a second time, I don't think. And yet, and yet um, I did a couple of weeks ago to prepare for this. And you know what I'm pleased about? I completely forgot that you're in it, Alex. I don't know how. So I didn't look out for you. I don't know which bit you're in. And it was a couple of days later. I was like, oh, shit, that's the film he keeps banging on about. So um, you're going to have to tell me um, where you appear in the film. Alex, would you like to tell us where you appear in Dawn of the Dead? Well, I'll be doing that bit when I come to it, Chris. I don't want to go early. Uh, I'm basically going to drag out me being in this movie for as much as possible. The story is, it's 2003. I'm working for MTV and I'm on the set of Dawn of the Dead at the Thornhill Mall in the suburbs of Toronto. And because... Um, I think it was one of those sets, and Chris, you'll know this. Sometimes you go to set visits and it's like, stand there, don't speak to anyone. Here's three minutes with Hugh Jackman. And you're like, okay, this wasn't really a great set visit. And this is one of those set visits where they just wanted the producers, Eric Newman and Mark Abraham, were just like, we want to show you everything. We want to promote this movie. We, we, we don't, you know, we want you to, basically they were like, come in the trailer, uh, come in like uh, Video City and, and we're going to start playing you bits that we already have of this film. So like a year before it was released, I was sitting there and and the bit they played me was the breakout in the armored buses where CJ throws the gas canister over the side and shoots it and it explodes. And I was sitting there going, oh, my God, this looks amazing. And they're like, going, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And I think because of my enthusiasm, they then went, yeah, do you want to be in it? And I was like, uh, yes. So I get made up by the Oscar winning makeup artist, uh, David Leroy Anderson. And I was the third zombie from the front, chasing Ving Rhames out of the shopping mall while Zack Snyder wandered round behind the camera, swinging a baseball bat like Tom Cruise in The Firm. And it was a very enjoyable experience. And that is uh, my story of how I came to be in Dawn <laughs> of the Dead. V, do you have as uh, a, a wonderful history with this movie as I? <laughs> I mean, let me just have a think about it. I mean, it was it was 2022. Um, I was working for NAM, the HIV information charity, and I was on a podcast. And um, yeah, I was really enthusiastic about the podcast. I believe my contributions were valued. And um, one day I was told that I was going to pick the Dawn of the Dead movies, which was pretty standard for the time that I would be told. And, and yeah, I just sat down and just I just boshed it on on my streaming services and I just watched it. And I take wow. 
Wow, what an experience. Yeah. So, yeah, humbly, that yeah. is my, uh, that's I mean, my, that's my history. With let me just movie. say, from the other side of the camera, it's a very different experience. So it's very difficult for me from, you know, having appeared uh, in the movie to sort of then look at it uh, objectively because, uh, yeah, you sort of watch it and you're like, would I have done that differently? Am I happy with my performance there? You know, even in, even in even in the, uh, the <laughs> ninety plus minutes that I'm not on screen of this movie, I still sort of feel that my essence is in every single frame. Mm. But, but I yeah. forgot your shadow and, looms and large, quote, uh, as as <laughs> as with everything that you touch. I would and, say and to quote the great uh, the great Clash Potter Peter Stirrup uh, from Monday's episode. Uh, this is really Alex Zane's. <laughs> Dawn of the Dead. So thank you, Peter Stirrup, once more. Uh, let me tell you a bit about this movie. So I just mentioned them. Eric Newman and Mark Abraham are the producers. <laughs> they bought the rights for Dawn of the Dead uh, from the bright holder uh, on the original movie, which was a man by the name of Richard P. Rubenstein. So uh, he was reluctant to sell these rights uh, because he always felt the studio would sanitize uh, Romero's vision. Uh, but then because Mark Abraham's uh, Mark Abraham's uh, long track record in keeping, in his words, creative integrity of studio distributors' films, uh, he was like, "Yep, if I'm going to say yes, you're the man to do it." And uh, I couldn't agree more because uh, Mark Abraham's uh, he produced uh, the Rundown, aka Welcome to the Jungle, which is getting a lot of mentions on the show at the moment, and is seriously one of the greatest action movies ever. So he gets, a, I'd have sold them to him had I had the rights. I'd be like. The Mark Abraham, welcome to the jungle, Mark Abraham, aka The Rundown. Yes, you can have the fucking rights to Dawn of the Dead, mate. It's written by a man who I, I don't actually know. We've, we've, we've talked about him briefly uh, on uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy episode, but I, I'm a huge, huge James Gunn fan. Do you guys like the work of, uh, and I'm adding the moniker, legend, James Gunn? On, uh, do, you, do you like his work as a writer? <laughs> v? <laughs> yes uh, yes i do um i think this script has some of the hallmarks of what would later come to know as his trademark style and then sometimes the script is bad you but there you go like a, a film journalist on purpose because you're talking to an actor this week which is slightly different to just talking to a re- your, your your regular podcast co-host it feels <laughs> like you're like yes here's a very diplomatic answer because i'm dealing with one of the cast of 2004's dawn of the dead <laughs> <laughs> why was um why was he swinging a baseball bat at you? Why what why did he why? Not at me. No, no sure. he was doing that cruise thing. You know, like when a, when someone has a, I I do it because I borrowed it from Zack Snyder, who I'm pretty sure borrowed it from Tom Cruise in the firm. Like when I'm on a call, I've got my baseball bat in my hand and I sort of swing it round because it's like my affectation that makes me feel like I'm kind of like a cool person doing something. But okay. also uh, I will say, I think he's just, and I met him again, Zack Snyder, uh, on the set of uh, the Justice League uh, before he departed that movie. I was at Leavesden and I interviewed him there. And as a director, he's just like the most laid back, considering how kinetic uh, his movies are. As a director, like when you meet him, he's so chill. Like he's got these huge sets around him, or he did at least by the time he got into Justice League. And he's just like swinging this baseball bat, just having a chat, sort of going, yep, that was cool. And I'm like, I really loved that demeanor. So I stole it. Okay. He he, he couldn't look me in the eye when I met him. Why? Too scared. 20 minute interview. I don't think he looked me in the the eye once. It was strange. I mean, 
did you, is this old Tilly or new Tilly? Was this pre or post beard? I don't know. Is that a difference? Do I look harder now or do I look weirder? Uh, I, you look sexier now. Okay. So I mean, I, 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 I you know, I, 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 I'd be surprised if it was post beard, like as in bearded Tilly, because I'm sort of, you know, I find your visage like I, I fixate upon it sometimes because it's it's so like Max Payne. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit Max Payne today in my critter shirt. Come on, we've got to talk about you really are. It's the shirt. <laughs> yeah, there we do. Uh, so uh, a little history about James Gunn. He'd made an initial splash with uh, the Troma movie, Tromeo and Juliet, uh, which had got him the job writing a Warner adaptation of the Spy vs. Spy comic. Uh, Warners uh, liked him, even though that project was abandoned. They then gave him Scooby-Doo, uh, which despite uh, its rather poor reviews... Uh, excelled uh, at the box office beyond all expectations so it puts james gunn firmly on the map and this was his first <clears throat> excuse me post scooby-doo movie and he does get the sole writing credit on this film despite um by all accounts having to leave the project early because of his commitment to scooby-doo 2 a monsters unleashed so a couple of other Writers worked on the script. Uh, Michael Tolkien, uh, who um, wrote one of your two's favourite films, Deep Impact. <laughs> Great film. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but not as good as Armageddon. <laughs> and uh, Mr. Scott Frank, who'd done Out of Sight, Minority Report, Logan and Marley and Me. Um, <laughs> so Tolkien further developed the characters while it was Scott Frank who did some of the action sequences. So... James Gunn talks about adapting uh, Romero's movie or, or making this, uh, and I'll use the word re-envisioning because that is the word that everyone chooses to use, this re-envisioning of Romero's Dawn of the Dead. He said uh, Romero has a very loyal fan base, as does that movie. Remaking a film like this is a daunting task, as was the case with Scooby-Doo. <laughs> there is simply no way to please everyone. So I didn't want to have to tell the same story again. Remakes are often boring because I'm constantly comparing them in my head. And that's where this word re-envisioning re uh, emerges. Uh, possibly because reimagining had already been used and tarnished by Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. So it's how do you say reimagining without ever referencing Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes? So loads of uh, cool uh, movies are obviously banded around in uh, bandied around in the press notes for this. Uh, people, uh, Eric Newman, the producer, talks about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Thing and The Fly as uh, remakes that managed to build on the original and were inspiration for what they were doing here. Uh, as uh, I mentioned, Zack Snyder's feature debut, commercials director, uh, he uh, chose to remake this as his first feature film uh, because it gave him, and I'm quoting, a reason to care about every shot, uh, which I feel was said without looking the journalist in the eye, but there you go. So not wanting uh, to have this version inevitably compared to George Romero, uh, Snyder uh, and the producers uh, decided, to, along with James Gunn, that they were going to have va fast zombies. Snyder says he wanted to make this film a straight horror that was, and I'm quoting again, as serious as a heart attack. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> this was, um, <laughs> do you not like that? 
No. <laughs> do you like that? Do you not like that? You, you don't like that? No, I don't like it. I mean, it. what's more serious than a heart attack? Well, well, I mean, don't answer that. that yeah, God, what a terrible life. thing to <laughs> ask me. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, as serious as insert serious medical condition. It's crap. Anyway. Okay. Again, sorry. Just to just to reiterate, you are talking to one of the cast, who's uh, clearly a good friend of Zack Snyder, his director. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I don't, I never, I don't ever was, uh, want you to ask uh, you to. I don't ever want to ask to, uh, you to pull your punches, but uh, but maybe pull your punches. And uh, let's talk a bit about the cast. Uh, Sarah Polly is in the lead. Uh, Indie darling, uh, who'd never really done a, a, a big uh, film like this, and who I, as Vicky can uh, verify, have watched in go in excess of fifty times. So I was very familiar. With Sarah Polly, my go-to VHS at college. What should we watch? Go. Uh huh. No, but you remember we just watched that seven minutes ago. Yeah. Okay, go then. Let's do it. So she says she met with Zack Snyder and Eric Newman uh, one night in a restaurant, and they convinced me they were going to make a really daring, sick, twisted movie. I loved them, and I believe they were going to make a great movie. And if it was a big disaster, I'd be with people I was willing to go down with. Uh, she says by the end of it, um, I often wondered what I was doing, but I saw the movie for the first time and it's completely sick and twisted and made by incredibly perverse people. So I take that as a, a badge of honour uh, for what they did here. Uh, Ty Burrell, uh, pre-modern family Ty Burrell, uh, plays Steve. Uh, him and Jake Weber, who plays Michael, uh, auditioned on the same day. Oh, wait, is she gone again? Oh, bloody mm. hell. I didn't keep even look talking, at the screen. She come, She's she'll vanished. She'll come back, won't she? I just thought we'd wait till she thought you'd keep talking until she comes back. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Ty Burrell and Jake Webber, who plays Michael, uh, they auditioned on the same day for opposite roles. Uh, so, Ty Burrell was going to be Michael and Jake Webber was going to be the arsehole Steve. I don't know what I, I, I can't see. I mean, obviously, you know. You watch Modern Family and you're sort of like, yeah, I can see Ty Burrell in that role as a uh, as a sort of nice guy. Uh, I don't know. I think they got the right roles in the end is what I'm saying. I can't I can't envision it, envision it the other way around. Can you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, Jake Webber makes a good arsehole. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I've certainly seen him do that before on screen. But yeah, fine. I don't care. It's all good. All right, then. Uh, well... Uh, Sarah Polly, uh, just to go back to our lead uh, in this, uh, she said she felt confident that the finished film was something George Romero would be proud of. Uh, as it turns out, George Romero was not proud of it, uh, but he didn't hate it. Um, I'm referencing the interview that you talked about on Monday's episode. Uh, that, I, Chris, the that, interview I, that... that I organised and transcribed, which I forgot about. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, of course. What am I saying? What am I saying? This is this is your baby. Uh, your your interview uh, that you birthed into the world is, is just a wonder uh, for this pair of shows this week. Um, so... Uh, when interviewed by Simon Pegg uh, in the interview organised by Chris Tilley, uh, George Romero says, it was better than I expected. I thought it was a good action film. The first 15 to 20 minutes were terrific, but it then sort of lost its reason for being. It was more of a video game. I'm not terrified of things running at me. It's like Space Invaders. There was nothing going on underneath. So while Romero's movie, as we discussed on Monday, was about consumerism, which... Uh, 
Vicky obviously uh, hated uh, and took quite personally, uh, I, I believe. Uh, she, she felt that Romero was attacking her love of browsing the shops. Uh, this isn't really about consumerism. Uh, there was an article in The Hollywood Reporter um, by a journalist by by the name of Richard Newby, who says uh, it was about Americans' increased fear of biological weapons, fervent mass militarization, and the burrowing question of who exactly are the people we call our neighbours. And it was uh, the legend Stephen King who elaborated on that somewhat uh, in the forenote for his 2010 book, Dance Macabre. Uh, he said uh, that this movie is really about society's fear of terrorism in a post 9-11 America. He says, we were haunted by nightmares about the idea of suicide bombers driven by an unforgiving and unthinking ideology, as far as most of us believe, and religious fervor. You can't beat them up or burn them. They just keep coming. The only way to stop them, this is Stephen King's words, was a bullet in the head. That's exactly what Snyder's zombies are, it seems to me. Fast-moving terrorists who never quit. You can't debate with them. You can't parlay with them. You can't even threaten their homes or families with reprisals. Big words um, about how Stephen King, at least, sees uh, the thinking process behind this movie as opposed to what George Romero did on Monday. So it opened at the number one spot, uh, knocking Passion of the Christ off the top spot. Uh, James Gunn says of this, well, you could see a movie with one guy rising from the dead or you could see one with thousands. God, I love James Gunn. Uh, and uh, it was the start of a, a massive sort of resurgence of the zombie film in America. You know, the likes of Zombieland, uh, The Walking Dead and uh, World War Z probably wouldn't have existed had this film not uh, achieved over 100 million on its $26 million budget. All right, then. Shall we go for a film? Up for it? Yeah. Anything to add to the history of this movie? Or yes. are you satisfied and sated with what I've just said? Go for it. Right, great. Let's go through this bloody good movie. Oh, uh, Dear Clashbillers, take a breath, because we are going through this 12 minutes of sheer brilliance right now. This is, oh, my God. Let's just go through it. Shh, no, let's just go through it. I know, I know. I'm excited. You're excited. We open in a hospital with some classic James Gunn dialogue. I, I think this is probably what you were referring to when you were like, there are some hallmarks of James Gunn here. The opening where the doctor is on the phone to his colleague trying to organize a golf game. And he says into the phone, well, I like Gary. That's that's James Gunn, right? <laughs> yeah, it was so good. good. It's so good. And... Um, and uh, obviously the big difference here in this opening is, unlike 1978's film, this film is not a sequel. Uh, so it already has quite an interesting job to do because it needs, us, uh, it needs to set up an outbreak that the audience already knows is coming and understands the rules of, but the characters don't. So we meet Anna, uh, played by Sarah Polly, uh, and we get mentions of a patient deteriorating in the ICU simply because of a bite. We get the legs out of the ambulance. We get the ironic use of the stereophonics. Have a nice day. Uh, which is, I just, oh, <laughs> I'm going to talk about it a lot. But the soundtrack to this movie is just so beautiful. 
So the stereophonics, ironic, have a nice day. Uh, and we're all like, tee hee hee, it won't be idiots. <laughs> uh, we get a nice window into Anna's uh, lovely, regular home life with Lewis. So we meet Vivian, sweet, angelic Vivian. Tee hee 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 hee, that's going to come back. Uh, they're happy, Anna and Lewis. Uh, they have sex in the shower. Thoughts? I mean, I'm like, one of you's in bed. You've clearly been in a relationship for a while. Do you really go, yeah. put the shower on, wait for it to warm up, and then... Do you? Yeah. And also, bear in mm. mind, she's done an 11-hour shift, and he's got his shoes on <laughs> when he's in bed. She takes his shoes off. So why has he got his shoes on in bed? What kind of man does that? What kind of person does that? He deserves everything he gets. The dirty so-and-so. Wow. <laughs> okay, so when I described it as a lovely, regular home life, you're like, there's something uh, There's something wrong with this relationship. Mm. It's, uh, there's something... <laughs> yeah, there's something rotten at the core of that relationship, <sighs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, what? What? Like he's he's so he's so inept, Lewis, that he has to wait for his girlfriend to come home. Yeah, he's lying down on the bed off. because That's if he I stood think. up, he'd just bang into stuff. So he has to wait <laughs> until she gets back. Take, I'll get <laughs> yeah. your shoes off, darling. No, honestly, yeah. no. I think it's for me. I'm adding it to my list of fast track ways in a film to show that a couple are so fucking in love you can't believe it. So I'm adding I'm adding shower sex to. Yes. Uh, to our favourite, and it hasn't usurped our favourite, which is uh, the 2014 Godzilla movie, which is enjoying a glass of wine with your partner and laughing at their jokes while wearing denim shorts. That is still (laughs) the greatest fast track to showing a loving relationship. (laughs) It does, however, because this movie, for all its sort of modern take uh, and everything behind it, this movie is, like Snyder says, it's a straight-up horror because this movie operates on the single theory not the single theory, but on the, one of its theories is sex equals death. It is a horror movie. Like b- both Lewis, Lewis has sex with Anna, and because they're having sex, they miss the news report talking about the outbreak, so they don't see that. And then, obviously, the other two people who have sex in this movie, Ty Burrell's Steve and Monica, also die badly. Yeah, I don't really get it. I, I, I get it in the slasher movies the morality of slasher movies, mm. but it doesn't really make sense to me in, in, in a, in a zombie movie. I don't see what the connection is. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a weird one. Um, I know you just dropped out there V. I was just explaining to Chris how weird it is that both, uh, both Lewis dies having sex with Anna after having sex with the shower, in the shower with Anna, uh, cause he misses the news report. And then the only other two people who have sex, Steve and Monica, uh, also, like die, so it is. It, it's your classic. You have sex, you die. The the scream rules. Oh my god! Uh, do you want to know how uh, Kim Poirier, I think is how you pronounce her name, who plays Monica? Do you want to know how she's described? Her character is described. Just to go back to the idea of some characters are potentially underwritten. On Wikipedia, Monica is described as a conspicuously sexy woman. <laughs> Conspicuously sexy. Brilliant. Uh, Right then. Here we go. It all kicks off and it is fucking beautiful. 
The way Lewis chucks Vivian, who's now infected down the corridor, is cool. But the way Vivian jumps up is the moment that gives me goosebumps. And I'm like, we're not in Kansas anymore. I'm like, what did that zombie just do? That's the fucking coolest thing. If I wasn't already sold on this movie, the way Vivian springs to her feet at the end of that corridor, I'm like, you know, there are numerous points in this movie that are just so beautiful that I just like, I start to well up when I think about them. And Vivian springing to her feet like that is just so goddamn fucking awesome. And this movie has my attention 100%. Then, Talk about transformations. Lewis, bang, seconds after dying, he has transformed. And, like, Anna runs to the bathroom. And she's, like, that shot where she, like, collapses into the bathtub. And you're like, fuck, 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 fuck. What is going on? Fuck, 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 fuck. This is amazing. Lewis smashes his head through the door. Like, the aggression level of these zombies is like mad and i know we've seen 28 days later by this point but 28 days later and i'm quoting danny boyle not a zombie movie so it's a rage virus these are zombies no doubt about it she escapes through the window and bang we meet a neighbor waving a gun at her and while you're dealing with that fucking image where he's like get away from me get back inside get away he gets knocked over by a fucking ambulance and then we get that pan across the city. Now, I compare this pan to the pan in Independence Day when the spaceship is hovering above the city and Will Smith slaps it, sorry, sees it, and it's just this, like, that pan where the city is ablaze. There are explosions going off in the distance. (laughs) What's wrong with you? What is wrong with you? I thought you'd used the wrong word. (laughs) So... You get that, but I mean, like that's my comparison. That 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 pan across the city, and you just mm. see, and it's just, it's just chaos. How beautiful is that? It's, it's apocalypse now, and it's, it's so yeah. It's 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 it sort of announces the arrival of a really exciting new director, doesn't it? Because you've not seen anything quite like this before, and it just bodes very very well. Um, Mm. For the rest of the film, but we, and but also, but then how can you follow this? Is um he, he sets himself up for a fall just by chucking everything at this, you know? It's so visually yeah. inventive because it he turns does. into a it turns into a video game. Next, it's reminding me of Terminator Two. You had the you know that shot with the head through the doorway was him, his homage to The Shining, and he's just chucking everything at this, and it's like it feels like someone who's been waiting his whole life to make a feature film. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I couldn't have said it better. The, just the way he attaches the camera to the car, like, you know, like you mentioned it on Monday, weirdly, but that Grand Theft Auto kind of shot where we're moving mm. with the car behind it. And then you get that shot of Lewis, her now zombified husband. And this is like we haven't seen a zombie sprint yet, but just the way he sprints, it's like it's actual sprinting it's not lumbering it's not like you know he's actually sprinting and then that the way he peels off uh because he sees the neighbor outside her house and just in the distance you see him taking down this neighbor and then you've got that overhead shot where the truck careers into the petrol station and you just see like just like you said it's the fucking apocalypse and if that wasn't amazing enough so you've just lived through that then we get one of cinema's greatest 
ever title sequences set to Johnny Cash, The Man Comes Around. I mean, talk about a title sequence. Like when Johnny Cash kicks in and you've got all that footage of what's going on and everything, it's just the exposition that it delivers in terms of society breaking down. You see the president being attacked. You understand in that moment with that two-second clip that any system of government, any system of governance has all gone to shit. And there were it ends on that spoken line from the Johnny Cash song. And I looked mm. and behold a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him. I, yeah, I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't I, believe I, you were I, using I, Johnny Cash. Ecstasy. Because I was listening to a lot of Johnny Cash at this time. He he wrote this song in 2002. I think he died a year later. And then a year later, it's in this. But it's one of the last songs he wrote from those great Rick Rubin albums that he made. And he could have written it for this film, but he wrote it using the Book of Revelation (laughs) when he he knew it was at the end of his life. I think it's the best song he ever wrote. And it's an apocalyptic song. And so it's a bit of a cliche now. A lot of people use this song. But it was was just a perfect marriage, really, of, of, of music and, you know, story. 100%. I'm actually almost in tears by the end of that opening 12 minutes and that title title sequence. At this point, I'm just like, I'm in ecstasy. I think it's fantastic. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Uh, so, 
It's time to meet some of the survivors. And some of our survivors, as far as this podcast goes, are Chris and I, uh, because if you didn't know uh, already, uh, we are recording remotely uh, this week. And uh, Victoria, uh, because her internet is pedal powered, has uh, lost connection. Uh, so despite the fact that you've heard her gorgeous dulcet tones at the start of this podcast, it shall now just be Chris and I. I'll be honest, hey, she, just, buddy. She, just, she just sent me a DM saying that she's pissed off that George Romero attacked her. She's pissed off about the <laughs> quiz and she's pissed off that you won't shut up about yourself in this film. So she's had enough <laughs> and she's pretending it's the internet. Uh, yeah, two of those are, are true, but uh, I, I, I know Vicky loves my stories about uh, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, so that, that, that's just, uh, that's unlikely. Right, let's meet Ving Rames as Officer Kenneth. Uh, nice guy, Michael, uh, played by Jake Weber. Andre, played by Mackay Pfeiffer. And his pregnant wife, Luda, played by Ina Korobinkina. Korobinkina, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I just honestly, it's like I had such a job on my hands because like, I swear to God, some of these characters, like ne you never get their names mentioned. And I'm like, wow, OK, how do we talk about them? So I've had to do it at the start. So Andre's Mackay Pfeiffer, uh, Luda is his wife, Michael's the nice guy, and Officer Kenneth is Bing Rames. And quicker than Romero's version, 15 minutes, we're in Crossroads Mall. So, Chris, I have my first logic question for you. Uh, they smash an internal window to enter the corridor of the mall. So surely if they've managed to get into a shop to then smash an internal window into the main body of the mall, they've had to smash an external window to get into the shop in the first place, which surely means there's an entrance there for the zombies. Yeah, I think you've just got to figure that they figured it out. They've 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 fixed it. They found an open, I don't know, found an unlocked bit. I don't know. Oh, it doesn't matter, Alex. It doesn't matter. Great, Are you going to question great. the listen, logic throughout listen. this film? Do you know what? I'm actually not. And I, I find it weird that I'm the one questioning the logic and the, you're the one defending my movie. So thank you. Um, I won't bring that up again. Um, so uh, we discover that the glass on the mall doors is shatterproof from the clever line where Andre says to a zombie, shatterproof, asshole. Uh <laughs> It, I mean, it's like, to my mind, just have him fucking shoot, try and shoot the zombie through the glass. Yeah. And then, uh, and it's, and then, oh, we get to know, you don't have to have him say to a zombie, shatterproof asshole. What? Show don't tell. Show don't tell. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Uh, we meet the mall security and arguably, in my opinion, probably one of the best characters uh, in the entire film, uh, played by the brilliant Michael Kelly. And that is CJ. Uh, thoughts on CJ? I just think his arc, everything yeah. about him, is is brilliant. Yeah. Well, you aren't expecting him to a change so fundamentally over the course of the film, and b turn into a hero, and c become one of your favourite characters, uh, because he's not only mm. set up as a as a psychopath here, but he's also, uh, I think, harking back to Dawn of the Dead, he's racist. You know, he calls yep. the African American character uh, Shaq. And so that that's he basically does. telling you all you need to know about him. And and I do think there's maybe, you know, we talk about this being a post 9-11 film. There's maybe making a comment here about immigration, about letting the right ones and the wrong ones in. And, and, and maybe they don't want oh. this sort of multicultural group of people um, in when when they're fully white. Um, or, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading between the lines or reading too much into it. But, yeah, he's, he's a bad one right now. So you're, I'm not expecting to really like him at the end. 
That's so true. I never even thought of that, but I think you're absolutely on the money there. Um, so I, one of the other uh, white security guards in the mall uh, is uh, CJ's underling, Bart. Um, I mentioned Bart because I just I love his relationship uh, with CJ in 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 the sense that obviously I think to, to my mind Bart sees CJ in a paternal way, which weirdly considering sort of how what an awful character Bart is, you know this sort of like little sort of slimy like yeah whatever CJ says yeah I you know like a guy with like a, a guy with a gun who has gone a little bit power crazy but looks up to CJ. Bart genuinely has one of the most tragic deaths because of this relationship with CJ um, of all the characters in this movie, which is obviously later on where he's been bitten and they're running away and he just screams, wait up, CJ. And CJ doesn't even look back. Uh, He just sort of runs on because, you know, they're being chased and Bart's been bitten. It's just like it plucks at your heartstrings that that's Mm. like Bart sort of like chasing his dad and his dad not seeing him as his son. So it's a one-sided relationship. It's... Oh, it's good. It's good. Um, So in my opinion, immediately with this conflict, the more security and this group of people, we have a a much more dynamic kind of relationship of the characters uh, than we did in the original. Uh, And we have more of them. So we already know there's going to be more deaths. We've Mm. got more cannon fodder. Yeah, uh, James Gunn knows drama is conflict, and so he's setting up as much conflict as he can as early in proceedings, it feels to me. Agreed. Uh, We see uh, Tom Savini in a cameo on the TV. I believe he uses the word twitcher, which is the word he uses in the 1978 Hmm. original, uh, this time playing as sheriff. Uh, in terms of, well, let's just get them all out of the way now, Uh, the Mm. cameos uh, or the references. Uh, One of the shops... In the mall, it's a clothes shop. is called Galen Ross, uh, the name of the actress who plays Franny in the original. Um, uh, we see uh, Ken Frey on the screen as a preacher and obviously Scott uh, Reiniger, uh, Roger from the original, is uh, the general at the mm. military base. Uh, weirdly, um, there's a coffee shop in this, which is referenced a lot later on, where Steve is just banging the coffee uh, with the with, with the gin or the vodka or whatever. Anyway, the coffee shop uh, was meant to be a Starbucks. Starbucks said, we're not letting you use our name. So the coffee shop is called Hallowed Grounds, which, as well as being a good name for the coffee shop, is a line borrowed from uh, The Man Comes Around, the Johnny Cash song in the opening. Right. Luda. She may have been bitten. Tee hee hee. There's some brief talk of escape. Officer Kenneth wants to go to Fort Pasta. And we meet one of the film's best new additions in terms of things that are different to the original, which is Andy on the roof opposite, who they communicate mm. with using signs. I, I love this uh, this whole conceit of another mm. guy trapped in his own little world. Um, there's a If you head on to YouTube, if you're interested, there's... Um, Andy makes a video diary uh, while he's there and you get to see everything that's happening from Andy's perspective. It's Dawn of the Dead, the lost tape, Andy's terrifying last days revealed. So you see him getting bitten from his angle and him Mm. sort of like taking the phone call from Officer Mm. Kenneth and the other end of it where, you know, you only hear him, but he's like, oh yeah, one of them bit me. And you're like, oh, you see him turn. Great. Yeah, he's the, the most tragic tape. character in this film, isn't things. he? Because um, the, at least these people, our people have each other. 
he's just stuck mm. there on his own. And, and as you see him become emaciated, it's really heartbreaking. And, and you can't yeah. hear him, you know, it's just, it's just, yeah, breaks my heart. Yeah. Uh, well, then you might want to check out the lost tape and these mm. terrifying last days revealed on YouTube. So uh, the intention of Snyder and Gunn was to add more action to this film than was present in the original. And so we get the truck turning up. Um, great confrontation as the truck's turning up, which is already like, oh, what's going on with the truck? Then you get the confrontation on the roof between CJ and the survivors. CJ doesn't want to let anyone else in. Sarah Polly, uh, Anna. Uh, when she says, stop pointing that gun at me. You don't often hear that. I don't think, like, sort of standoffs with firearms. I don't know whether it's her delivery or the fact that it just, like, the way, possibly the way she says it, it just feels very authentic, like how you'd react mm. if someone was actually pointing a gun at you, which makes it all the more real. Yeah, I agree. And also, so CJ says here, you're going you're to get us all killed. And it's one of those things that i think of you know like we talk about marcia gay harden's character in the mist is the villain at this point is he right would cj still be alive today if these our, our goodies our heroes hadn't got in and taken charge of the situation i don't know maybe cj seemed like he knew what he was doing even though he's a horrible man so it's one of those moments where although i'm on the side of these people maybe cj's right yeah uh, and the other sort of more practical result of that is we do lose CJ from the film at this point for a, a good mm. half an hour, if not more stint. And, you know, I, I think it's sort of lack of realisation that, like, he is one of your greatest characters and is bringing a lot to this movie um, uh, in terms of the conflict. And suddenly he's sort of shut away, locked up somewhere. So we lose him. Um the truck backs down the ramp. Zombie Skittles is great, where you just get the smear of blood against the back of the truck as it mows them down. And uh, this is where I think we get a real idea. And I want to talk about this. So Mike and Andre uh, step outside the safety of the mall to try and help the people on the truck and stop shooting at zombies. And you really realize that en masse, these fast-moving zombies are a massive threat. But question, are they almost too much of a threat? Like, you, if you, it really limits what you can do in terms of putting your cast and zombies in the same mm. physical space, because not zombies in any number of this kind, it's like they don't, they don't stand a chance. And if you ever, which happens later when they go to try and rescue uh, Nicole after she's gone after the dog, and it just, like, you're just watching it go, this is a suicide mission. Like, you cannot be in the same space as any number of these zombies and have even an iota of a chance of survival. It makes it harder to create suspense, I think. Um, you've got action in place of suspense. So what's what's the tension that the the 78 version creates is by putting them in the same room. And eventually this thing will get you. And so you're taking chances and it's not happening at speed, but it's it, it's it's increasing the tension. Whereas here, yes, you can't you can't do that kind of thing apart from the scenes where they seem to be a bit slower, <laughs> you know, for the sake <laughs> of, 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 of trying to create that, that suspense. So yeah, it's a different, it's a, it makes it a different kind of movie, which is why this is more an action film. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so we've got even more characters chucked into the mix now. Uh, my favorite, and by favorite, I mean, one of the memorable ones, um, because God knows some of them you really don't get to know, as I said in the introduction, uh, but Ty Burrell playing Steve. Oh, 
He's great. Uh, just you need a character like this, entirely self-serving, uh, someone you're just waiting to see die. So uh, big respect to Ty Burrell. He's a sort of standout for me. I remember when I first saw it going, yep, yep, Steve, want to see him die. Uh, others include an obese woman in a wheelbarrow, who how they don't go, well, she's definitely a fucking zombie is beyond me. I mean, it, she looks great. The makeup's incredible, but come on. Like, what is... She's like... She's basically a zombie when she turns up. Yeah, uh, I, I guess I guess the film is doing a... Is, is, is trying to... Um, it, it, it's... it's it's them learning and figuring it out, isn't it, over the course of the film? Yeah. And because we're coming at it with our own knowledge, it's a bit frustrating where, as the viewer, yeah. you're saying, that's obviously a zombie, whereas they're trying to understand what is happening. Yeah, of course, uh, because this this begins the whole bike conversation. Very quickly, the other people uh, we meet, uh, Glenn, who is going to die very soon, uh, played by Matt Frewer, uh, famously Job in Lawnmower Man 2, Beyond Cyberspace, and Moloch, uh, more famously, in Watchmen. Uh, so that's Glenn. He's going to be dead soon. Uh, we've got Tucker. Uh, so uh, Tucker is Tucker. Uh, we also have Norma, uh, who is... Norma and Smokes. Norma Smokes. There you go. So Norma Smokes. Um, I, I, I guess Frank is there, the Matt Frewer character, so they can have... It harks back to 78, doesn't it? Where in 78, they're discussing whether they should have bought this baby. And she's not having much involvement in that conversation. And here, they're deciding whether to kill Frank, his character. And he's not having much involvement in that. And it's interesting. It's you know, It does raise those moral questions of what would you do? What would you want to do? What would you want done to you? So... It's fine, but you know, it, you kind of want that character, that conversation to be around a character we've got to know rather than a character we've just met. One hundred percent. Yeah, sorry, I call him Glenn, but you're absolutely right. His character's uh, his character's Frank. So yeah, like you, you, you're right. We get this sort of debate uh, about what to do because uh, you know Anna realizes it's the bite that is going to kill them. Sorry, turn them into zombies. Um, which obviously Andre is like, uh oh, uh, are you sure? Uh, by the way, don't ask about my pregnant wife. She's fine. <laughs> so uh, we get this. Uh, I guess I don't like this scene because Anna, to this point, has been uh, a voice of reason. She's been steadfast. She's been intelligent. She's been everything. But she realizes that it's the bite. And then she says to Mike, uh, don't, don't kill Frank. So it's like, well, why? What what are you saying? And initially, you think it's like she, you know, she might be leaning on, like, wait for him to turn or something. But it it really isn't that. Like, because Mike says Anna knows it's the bites, and she's mm. like, I'm not sure. And he's like, No, you are. And she really is. So she knows Frank's dead. So why she sort of like Mike points out that if Frank turns and he's inside the mall as a zombie, that jeopardizes all their lives. So why is Anna still like, No, you can't kill him when she know like when it's established she's sure it's the bites at this point. It just it makes her makes it's a stupid decision, I think, for that character at this point. Yeah, but I guess that's the journey she's going to go on, because Steve in a minute says if he turns, Anna should ask Anna to shoot him in the head and then she does shoot him in the head. So I guess they're trying to give her her little arc where she's so against killing someone that hasn't turned yet to I'm, I'm ready to do it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. It's just weird because then the the sort of button on this whole bit, though, is where Michael goes to see her 
And she's like, oh, thank you for not doing it, Michael. And then we hear a bang in the background. And I think it's Kenneth who's like shot uh, Frank. And, and even and even then, you, she's still sort of like, thanks for not doing it. It's like, bang. And why bang? Because my, uh, because Frank turned. Uh, let's move on to the, the fun bit now because we get a lovely montage uh, set to down with the sickness, uh, which is performed by Richard Cheese and Lounge Against the Machine, uh, which is a wonderful song on a wonderful soundtrack. Uh, so in this montage, Steve and Monica have sex. They are dead meat. Uh, and then we have uh, another brilliant edition, also involving the brilliant edition that is Andy, which is the awesome Killing Celebrity Lookalikes game, uh, which gives us two things, fun and also Andy being a great shot. I, my only bugbear is don't kill someone who looks like Burt Reynolds because, you know, Burt's a legend. So, Yeah, thinking back to this film, which is tragically nearly 20 years old, um, I remember two things. It's the opening sequence and it's the celebrity golf ball scene. And I feel like most people might have that. It's like they're the, the two standout scenes. The first one because of how well it's shot on this because it's just it's such a funny conceit. And it's taking, you know, it's taking, you know, he, he was playing tennis in the 78 version on his own on the roof. And it's taking that and just really expanding on it in a really creative and funny way. So, yeah, I remember that bringing the house down in the cinema, in a packed cinema. Like, <laughs> that was a really funny scene. It's yeah. also dark, though, yeah. because these were all people, you know, we're laughing yeah. at, at this. And these were all these were us. So yeah. it's it's funny that it's funny that we're laughing at it without really thinking about what's beneath the surface of this. That that maybe we've just lost our humanity as as characters on the screen and as an audience. But I, but I, is that not a testament to like the, how good the film has been up to this point? That we as the audience have been so sort of like transported to this bleak existence that is now there in this mall that you know given like a moment of lightness for the characters and a moment of lightness in the film we grip onto it it's like it's a release it's that kind of release of laughter like you're like oh, okay okay mm. it's not all bad you can still have fun in this post-apocalyptic existence so it works it really does work and we get a lovely uh, sweet dinner party, sort of sweet dinner party which allows a little bit of exposition about Mike who was a terrible husband but a great dad Oh, Alex, it's so cliched, though. I was a good it's not dad, some but I was stuff. a bad husband. It's <laughs> like, oh, really? I knew you were going to say that. I could have finished that sentence for you. And, and you know, and, 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 and it's James Gunn wanting to make this film about people having redemption, people whose lives were maybe different before this started and having an opportunity to change now. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it made me cringe a little bit. Yeah, I mean... It's. I think it's Jake Weber who talks about uh, this uh, in some of the interviews that he did around the film. He was like, you get to know these characters, but, you know, not like loads, but just enough to care about them. And you're like, yeah, this is the movie doing that in the most black hmm. and white fashion. It's sort of like we need to care about Michael, but we don't really want to dwell on it. There's no time for subtlety. This is a swift 90 minutes. We want to get back to the zombies. So, uh, yeah, literally, yeah, that's it. Yeah, bad, bad husband, good dad, good dad. And you're like, all right, got it. Because as the viewer, I, I mean, you're right. It's fucking like, oh, route one stuff. But you're also like, great, because, I, 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 you know, just tell me what I need to know and get back to the zombies, uh, which is what we do, because the power gets cut. Uh, uh, we get the hellscape that is the birthing room uh, where Andre is with Luda, who does not look very well. Uh, but before we get to that infamous scene, uh, let's take a short break. 
So they're trying to get the power back on at the shopping mall. Uh, CJ, who has been locked up somewhere, finally comes back and they go to try and turn the power on. Another excuse for basically uh, some action. Uh, But the action does contain a really brilliant thing, which is the zombie hanging from the girders with no legs that bites Bart. Mm. Very, very good image. Bart dies. CJ, wait. Heartbreaking. One of the sadder deaths. Uh, Let's just do it. Let's get to this scene. So... What's your take on this scene? Has Andre gone mad? Because what the hell is he doing? Like he has like gone from you know, I, you know, I really, I really want to bring my son into a, a you know, I want to raise his son and give him the opportunities, uh, or my baby, give him the opportunities that I never had myself. And you're like, get that. But it's a fucking hell of a sharp right to go, I get that. But I also know that my wife, my partner is a zombie, and I've got no idea what's going to happen here. But I'm going to keep her alive. It's like he's just. He seems to have gone mad. Admittedly, at this point, he might think his baby is going to be okay. So yeah, I think you can give him a pass. But, but that has to be the logic there. He he thinks the baby. Well, he's hoping, he's praying that the baby will be fine and will be born mm. um, okay. And so that's fine. And then, you know, yeah. we can't speak to this, Alex. But I think once you have a child, it changes you. It changes you, and all he cares about is protecting his baby at this point. Even if instinct. the baby is clearly a zombie. It's a zombie. I mean, you're right. We can't speak on it. We can't speak on it. And any uh, any any uh, any clash butter who is uh, who has a, has a child right now, uh, you know, a, a paternal, maternal. Uh, in our case, paternal. Um, maybe you can uh, like tell us uh, on Twitter. That'll be a hell of a question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm talking myself into something I don't actually want to happen. But I've started now, and you know what I'm like. I'll just carry on this train of thought until Alex, I do fucking grind it into the earth. But you no, are, I'm carrying you are on in charge you of stop me. I'm there. You you are in charge of the Twitter until Monday. You have 48 hours. <laughs> Just have 48 hours to carry to on with this. To ask the question. So to ask it. the question. <laughs> I, I have 48 hours to ask the question. Dear class putters, if your partner gave birth to a baby and that baby was a zombie, would you still love it? Uh, answers on Twitter at ClashPod. Or, or, Cannot wait. Or to would do you? That. Would you kill it? And it is a newborn baby. It's literally just come out. Hmm? Awesome. Yes. This is uh, this this is going to be the beginning or the end of us on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, he's holding the baby that he uh, he's either gone mad or he loves paternally, uh, and then Norma turns up. And um, oh, sorry, just to backtrack slightly, it is also a bit mad that that no one has thought. You know what? We might have to check on Luda because I know Andre keeps saying she's fine, but you know Anna is an actual nurse, so it's mm. it's it's verging on the weird that no one has gone. Do you know what? We'll probably just pop down there while he's doing something else because yeah, but it's, you know we should check on her. Agreed, and they've done a weird thing with Anna because she it, this was her movie, and then I, I don't know as it progresses, it just stops being her movie, and it becomes about the guys and. She comes back into it a bit at the end, but I do think it's strange uh, trying to figure out who our protagonist for big portion. You said CJ gets sidelined. I think Anna gets sidelined for the for about half an hour here. Yeah, that's actually true. I never even thought of that because you're right. It's all from Anna's perspective. And then it does become much more hmm. of an ensemble piece once they're in the mall. Yeah, yeah, a, a, a fair point. Uh, so Norma turns up. Norma's an idiot. I mean, she sees Luda tied to the bed as a zombie. Emphasis on tied to the bed, Norma. 
Tied to the bed. Uh, so probably what you should do, Norma, uh, character description, Norma, who smokes and drives a truck, uh, is not shoot Luda and uh, bring on the wrath of Andre, probably back out slowly from the room, run back to everyone else and go, so, little situation. Uh, Luda's a fucking zombie and I think the baby is too. Andre's being weird. Don't shoot his wife. Dude, you need these people to make bad decisions so that you can shout at the screen and so that we can get the conflict and the action that we want. Yes, I know, but it's isn't it that thing sometimes? I think you're taken out of it. It's like... If you think as an audience member, that's so stupid. It's like it's the it's the age old, you know, don't go into the woods alone. Don't go into the basement alone. You know, it, it's that thing that Cabin in the Woods sends up so perfectly. It's just if you are going, what a stupid thing to do. Then, you know, and then the movie has failed to put you in the mindset of that character to go. Yeah, actually, you're probably so fucked up by the situation at hand that you would do something like that. Well, we're getting to that moment. That's coming up in about five minutes. The actual. Yeah. The worst version of that. Uh, so Norma dies, Andre dies, the Zombaby dies. Ooh, Zombaby. I like that. Um, the mad I, decisions I it, just I keep coming. I said five minutes ago. I said Zombaby five minutes ago. Okay, it's so Zombaby, uh, ladies and gentlemen, copyrights Chris Tilly. Uh, that is Zombaby. Right, mad decision now. So mm. why, oh why, after the fallout from the birthing room, why or why, when they sort of line up the bodies of Norma, Andre and Luda, do they decide they don't want to die in the mall? Now, I said this on Monday. I'm saying it again here. To me, like this this, this absolutely batshit crazy idea of going, we have a mall here that we are securing that, more importantly, is absolutely loaded with resources. So we are fine. Yes, the situation is bad. People have died. We don't want to die here, but we'd rather die here than anywhere else. It's like this thing where you're sort of looking at that and going, but that was such a unique situation. A pregnant zombie woman gave birth to a zombie baby who the father then treated as a real baby. This isn't like this has happened six times in here. So obviously we can't stay here. It's like it's a one-off and it ain't ever going to happen again. So why are you saying let's get the hell out of here to go to an island with no knowledge of whether it's infected with zombies or whether it even has fucking resources it's mad yep i agree as i said on monday you know it's clear in dawn of the dead they've been infiltrated by the biker gang it's over the mall is gone so um it's time for them to leave but here it's it's not it's not the same situation so yeah they give themselves five days to leave um yeah it's it's yeah i i agree i agree i, I would stay put it's a it's a sort of yeah, it's a ticking clock that doesn't really work because what, what five days just sort of feels like, well, there's no, you know, you could get to day five and you're like, actually, do you know what? Well, we haven't quite finished building our battle buses. So do you want to do it, call it six, seven, yeah. whatever? It doesn't matter. And, and it's not hard to make this uh, something that they have to do. Uh, you know, they did it in, in 78 fine. You know, just have have an issue, that uh, a problem, uh, you know, something's got in. They've got to get out. So, yeah, I agree with you, Al. Well, the gang go full A-team now and build bus battle wagons in the basement. Um, they want to get Andy some food. They need him on their escape plan because he's such a great shot, uh, but he's starving. So they lower the dog Chips into the zombie horde. Uh, quick note on the zombie horde because, uh, you know, you look at it and you're like, that is incredible. I wonder how many extras. 200 is all they had for those 10,000 zombies outside the mall. And they just moved the same group of 200 extras around and put a green screen behind them. 
and created this like 10,000 strong zombie horde, which is kind of impressive when you watch the video. So they're not just getting Andy because he's a good shot. Aren't they getting him as well? Because he's a human being that they want to help and save. Yes, sorry, of course, of course, but I think the the, the fact that they're getting they're, they're sending the dog over for food is because they haven't finished their prep at this point to you know to drive over there. But yeah, you're right, they're rescuing him. But they do actually. The line is said. Someone does mm. go. You know, we can't do this without him. We need him because he's such a good shot. Oh, so yeah, yeah. So they do actually say that's one of the reasons for getting Andy. But you you got to hope, even though it hasn't been mentioned, that they're <laughs> like also also he's a fucking human. <laughs> So, uh, chips, zombies don't care about chips. Uh, um, they send him over. He goes through the dog flap on Andy's door. Uh, but Andy, you know, for all his skill with a gun, doesn't open and close dog flaps very quickly. So the zombies get in and Andy gets bit. Um, but, you know, you forgive Andy the uh, dexterity with which he opens a dog flap because someone else is about to do something fucking ridiculous. And that person is Nicole played by, I believe the actress called Lindy Booth. And Nicole uh, is in love with Chips, the dog um, more than she is in love with uh, the young security guard who she has uh, become romantically involved in. So off she pops. And I believe, and I didn't double check it, but I believe in classic Steve fashion, the line when they see Nicole driving over in the vehicle, Steve actually says, not she's going after the dog. He says, it's going after the dog, <laughs> which is just Steve through and through. It's mm. going after the dog. Brilliant. So it's, thoughts on this, Chris? Well, it's a horror trope, isn't it? It's the, it's They know what they're doing when they write this in, that you're going to be shouting at the screen saying, what are you doing? I think it's fine. I also think that um, although Nicole's a human, I'd just leave her at this point. She has made her own bed. She's got to lie in it. Wow. You'd leave Nicole. That didn't, that's, that's fine. All right. Good to she, know. Nicole's, Nicole Everyone. has got chips. Nicole has got chips. She's fine. <laughs> yeah, but Andy's in there with her. That's what they, she's going to get bit anyway. You're, I mean, it's, it's a mad yeah. thing to do. Do, do you want to know? Uh, what James Gunn had initially wanted to do with this whole dog sequence. Did you uh, did you read this? I found a 2007 no. interview with um, Chud um, magazine website. Uh, website. Cinematic it's... happenings under development. Marvellous. Thank you, Chris. Uh, so this is uh, an interview with um, the actress Jenna Fisher, who was married to Gunn um, at the time. And she talks about what he'd actually wanted to do that was proved to be too expensive. She says there was there was a scene in Dawn of the Dead that didn't get shot. It was a brilliant zombie dog scene, but it was too expensive. Basically, the guys send their dog out to get guns from the guy across the street. They had lots of dogs from a pet store in the mall that they were sending over. And all the people on the roof are watching and are going, it's working. It's working. The dogs are coming back with guns. And then all of a sudden, there's a rumble like thunder. And even though zombie humans don't attack dogs, a horde of zombie dogs appear and descends upon the living dogs and rips them apart with only one dog making it back with guns. Zom-dogs. So how do the dogs become zombies if the zombies don't go after dogs? 
Wonderful question. Um, unfortunately, Jenna Fisher goes into no more detail uh, about it. uh, I'm here to ask the tough questions. I have notes, Mr. Gunn, and I guess it didn't make it in the film. Maybe they realise that. We can't have it both ways. (sighs) So they go and get Nicole back. She's trapped in Andy's shop with zombie Andy. Um, We know Andy's turn now because, like, it's such a great end to the wonderful sign game that, like, the final sign he holds up is just smeared with blood. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I, I, a little aside here. I don't know. Triv- horror trivia fans might like to know that Nicole, who's in a relationship with the sexy young security guard, Terry, uh, Kevin and Lindy, uh, Kevin Zeggers and Lindy Booth, who played those parts, also played a couple in the previous year's 2003 Wrong Turn movie. They were the boyfriend and girlfriend in that who end up staying with the broken down vehicle and are killed uh, by the three finger clan um, uh, by three finger rather. So uh, anyway, a bit trivia for you. Right. How the fuck did we not know about this sewer before? That's the sort of piece of useful information about getting Andy food and getting back from Andy. Where, where's this sewer come from? That's fucking convenient, isn't it? Did no one think as they were lowering a dog into the zombie horde and driving buses across to Andy? It's like, do you know what would be quicker? Let's get Andy in the sewer. Unbelievable. Good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yep. <laughs> so uh, they rescue Nicole, uh, but zombies follow them back into the sewer. Uh, CJ dragging an injured Tucker as the zombies close in. It reminds me of Vasquez and Gorman and Aliens. Hold fast, Tilly, because I know you're going to be like, everything reminds you of Aliens. It does. Vasquez and Gorman and Aliens, when the aliens are, alien warriors are stalking them, it reminds me of that. Then Tucker screaming, shoot me, shoot me, reminds me of the colonist in Aliens saying, kill me, kill me. And then this is where the only reason I'm mentioning it is because Steve does a burk and locks the door, trapping them with the... It's three. It's a fucking mm. aliens homage and right. no questions asked. Agreed. <sighs> You're allowed that. Thanks. Thanks very much. Um, and so this is the bit I appear when the zombies have broken into the mall and you see them going, we have to leave now. And people are still like, what now? Mm. And they're grabbing their stuff and they're running into the lift. Any fans of me as a zombie, that's niche. (laughs) Anyway, this is the scene I'm in. And I've told the story before. I've told the story before. I I performed it with a limp in the first take and Zach Snyder went, that was great. Don't do it again, though. I was like, cool. So no limping. Anyway, (laughs) they get into the lift and uh, and, um, it's just a love a lift gag in a horror movie. We're doing all the greats today, Chris. I'm mentioning Deep Rising as well. So the lift gag in this movie is where they get into the lift, having the carnage outside, the zombies running at them, and some lift music plays. And CJ goes, I like this song. Brilliant. In Deep Rising, they get into a lift and they hear this unearthly roar from a creature like, like outside the lift, but lift music's playing. And after the sound, I think it's Jason Fleming goes, what was that? And someone goes, it's the girl from Ipanema. Brilliant gag in Deep Rising. If that wasn't a reason enough to do Deep Rising, I don't know what is. What was the song playing here? Anyway, can't remember. Uh, it's a different gag. It doesn't matter. Uh, so do you know? I'm all out of, I'm all out of love by air supply, obviously. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Didn't even notice that one. Uh, Right. We're into the final hurdle now. So 
It's the big chase. Gas cannon explosion. Fucking cool. Monica's death. Oh, that is grim. Chainsawed in half. That's This is Glenn, sorry. I get confused, Frank and Glenn. So Glenn chainsaws her in half because she had sex. And the rule is you don't have sex in a horror movie. Uh, CJ, for some reason, decides to go down in a blaze of glory. Uh, I mean, CJ at this point is a proper James Gunn character. Like he's a, he's a kind of prototype for so many Gunn characters. Like he's a wise ass. He gets the best lines. He's a hero. I mean, he could be in Suicide Squad or Guardians. Michael gets bitten. Um, in the escape, Steve dies, obviously, and uh, Anna gets to kill Steve because he's an asshole. Michael gets bitten. I think I'll stay here a while and watch the sunrise. And then as the boat is pulling away, we hear Michael's gunshot. Bang! And then we get some boobs, courtesy of Steve's, Steve's home video, which sets up the video camera for the found footage ending. And then that song kicks in oh my god loads of people have died loads of people have died by the jim carroll band the song is people who died oh my god how funny is that what a song it's such an upbeat song with such a dark thing and then you watch it in relation to what you've just watched i swear to god i remember hearing it in the cinema as like the the credits are playing and i just it's it's, it gives me a release of endorphins because it's so like it's just such a good decision to play that song so then uh we get to the island they get to the island and through this uh found footage uh material uh we see that the zombies have made it to this island it wasn't the safe haven they thought it was going to be when they left the mall thoughts on this ending this bleak af ending chris good good it's the true it's the true ending it's the real ending it's what's required of this film so I am all over it. And I'm kind of gutted we didn't get a sequel to see um, how they would have dealt with that zombie horde. Mm, yeah, agreed. It does. It sort of sets up a sequel perfectly. And then obviously everyone moved on to different things. So unless you've got any more to add right now, that is Dawn of the Dead done. Are you ready for the bits? All I've got is that it was exciting in the closing credits to see the special makeup effects were done by the same woman who did the special makeup effects on Cabin in the Woods. Um, you, you you weren't there from when we talked about that episode, uh, that film. But uh, right. do you know who did the special makeup effects? I do not. Heather Langenkamp. Okay. Do you know who that is? Yes. Isn't she? Is she yeah. in the Blair Witch Project? No, it's Nancy from um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh bloody hell! Of course it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah, she does. Yeah. It's just. It's just so awesome to see this horror sort of icon now. Whenever she pops up, doing the the makeup effects in these films, um, and I think they did an amazing job. Her and her husband, who 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 owns the company, um, I think the zombies look really good here, and it's really interesting the way they sort of develop them. But yeah, she's back to acting now. Actually, she's done, she's done some horror stuff coming out this month. But um, yeah, it's always good to see her name. But yeah, that's all I got. All right. Then. Let's do these bits. So, Chris, uh, what was your best scene? Dawn of the Dead was marketed with its 10-minute opening sequence that was broadcast on cable television four nights before its theatrical release. What an advert for a film and what an opening for a film. So, yeah, it's what you're picking. It's what I'm picking. And I'm sure it's what Vicky will be picking. Yep, 100%. I wrote the first 15 minutes, every goddamn frame of it. Uh, What's Vicky gone for? 
She hasn't sent us. Uh, having said she will send us her bits, I think we do this and then we've got an issue if um, we've both picked the same film at the end. Okey-dokey. Ask me a question. Ask me a question. Ask me the next one. And I'm right. sending her a message. Tell me what your most valuable whatever is. I've got I've got I've got Vicky's bits. Sorry, let's cut okay. this in. So uh Vicky's bits. So we both picked the opening as uh our favorite scene. Her best scene is that little zombie baby when it opens its zombie baby eyes. Hilarious. Wow. What a woman. What a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, I'll start with the most valuable whatever. Uh, that is um, Alex Zane. Uh, he plays the third zombie from the front, chasing Ving Rhames out of the... It's, it's Zack Snyder, really. Um, I just think this film, as you said at the start, here's a guy who is just throwing everything at the screen, but that everything works so well. I think gun script is great, but it's Snyder's direction that just pips it. It's just an incredible film to look at and his music selection for the soundtrack is impeccable so Zack Snyder gets it for me and I said it at the start and I stand by it and it's not a comment on his other work but this is his best film Ha! Uh, MVW I've written Zack Snyder dash his best film um, I was going to hop back to what Yay! you said at the beginning yeah it, I mean it really is it really is I mean he's he's an amazing visual artist um and he loves a bit of slow motion, but yeah, I think it all it just it just feels like a great marriage this of of director with uh, material, and you know uh, the 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 Netflix one he did, Army of the Dead, didn't I don't know it didn't work, mm. it didn't work like this one worked. Maybe it's because he didn't have as strong a script, but um, yes, I think this is a Zack Snyder movie. It really What's is. Vicky gone for? It really is. And do you want to know? Yeah, I'm gonna, yeah, here we go. Her most valuable whatever in this film. Ty Burrell nearly steals it, uh, but and Michael uh, Kelly has a good solid arc, but she has gone for Sarah Polly. She's a good anchor in that she doesn't go to bits like Fran does in the original, and you trust her to be useful and a leader in a tight spot. Female actors in this sort of movie have a lot to shoulder, both as characters and probably in real life. And ultimately, I wouldn't mind being on a boat to nowhere with Sarah Polly. She's a hero. That is Vicky's most valuable whatever. Uh, it goes against uh, the argument that she disappears into the ensemble uh, that we were discussing earlier. But Vicky's not here. So that just stands. We'll just leave that floating there. Right. I'll do Vicky's change first. In the dinner scene, she wants Michael to say he enjoys sunsets with his kids so that at the end when he says in the movie, I'm going to watch the sunset, uh, then we know that he's going to heaven with his kids. So he gets a happier ending. Yeah, because he's Schmaltz. a great fucking dad. What's your change? Um. Well, we, we went over it a little bit, actually, in that discussion based on that quote, but... I think it would fundamentally change an aspect of the film. But if a baby turns into a zombie baby, then a dog has to turn into a zombie dog. Give me zombie dogs. I wanted zombie dogs. They were talked about, apparently. I didn't know that. I didn't steal this. I just wanted a zombie dog. That's it, Alex. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I mean, mine is just find a reason to leave them all that is more pressing yes. than 
the, the unique circumstance of a zombie baby was born to a zombie mother and everyone died because of it. We need to leave them all because I don't want to die like this. You won't die like that. No one's going to die like that. Too unique a set of circumstances to warrant leaving them all. Right then. Yeah, I did just message Vicky about five minutes ago saying, she's not responded, but saying, would you have killed that baby if it was yours? <laughs> oh, okay. No, well, let's do no the response. Let's find do you think I've, Do you think I've upset her? She's not responded. Oh, no. I don't. I doubt you've upset her. She's, she's, uh... Right, it's time for the verdict. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! Okay, uh, Chris, would you like to go first? Sure. No problem. Um, my verdict is... I mean, speed is what we demand in monsters in movies these days, but that lack of speed is what makes the zombie unlike every other monster in every other monster movie. So making them fast, I'm not much of a fan of that. Also, I think Stephen King was reaching a bit. This is definitely a post 9-11 film, but I I think he's gone too far in his reading of what this film has to say. I don't think this film has a lot to say. I think Romero had so much to say with his film as I listed in my intro as we talked about while talking about the film and so it's just more of a movie to me it's one of the greatest films of all time and it's also the film that doesn't feature Alex Zane making it the superior movie therefore 1978's Dawn of the Dead (laughs) all right then I'll go next uh, I have played a zombie for both these directors, uh, Land of the Dead and, of course, this uh, Dawn of the Dead that we just talked about. So that removes uh, it as a simple choice of loyalty. Uh, I think 2004 on this watch, being completely honest, is a little scrappier than I remember in terms of people doing ridiculous things because it's required of them. Uh, for want of a better cliche, uh, this would be style over substance. Um, if the substance it was based on wasn't so gosh darn good to begin with. Which brings us to 1978's original. Uh, Brilliant, but overlong, in my opinion, at times as aimless as the zombies in the mall. Whereas 2004, like its zombies, is fast and moves with purpose. There's no meat on its bones. And also, and it might be blasphemy, fast zombies are scarier and a way more dynamic foe than a slow zombie. And plus the 2004 Dawn of the Dead's first 15 minutes are probably the greatest opening, if not one of them, in cinema history. So for me, it is 2004's Dawn of the Dead. Pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Are you nervous? Obviously, you've got a vested interest in which wins. Uh, I I don't have a vested interest at all. I just think you're pathetic. Uh, What has Vicky said? Why? Why am I pathetic? Because I love Dawn of the Dead 2004 more. Absolutely not. It's fun. I, on this, if I wasn't in it, I would still say it was a better film, mate. I think it's a better film. It's much It's much more my kind of movie. So screw you anyway. Let's see who's won. This is what Vicky says. The new one is zippier than the old one. The running zombies are better than walking ones. Fact. But the decision to have the characters in the new one unaware that a bite leaves you infected, even though we know that because we've seen a thousand zombie movies, including this one, is a which is a fucking remake, is a madness decision. 
And the old one just has some special magic in it. It's hard as shit to make a film which is essentially a huge metaphor without burying the story under the weight of its own cleverness and still managing to push that metaphor in subtle ways. Like when Peter is cross about the biker gang taking over the mall, he says it's ours, even though it, capitalism, isn't making him happy. He doesn't want to give it up. Like we all know the system is broken, but we can't think of a better way of living. So the old one, obviously. That means we have a winner, and the winner is... 1978's Dawn of the Dead. And with its victory, I swear on the Clash Pod Oath to bury the story of me being in 2004's Dawn of the Dead from here on in, I shall never repeat. That's tome. All right, then. Dawn of the Dead is done. Shall we look ahead to next week? Mm Mm-hmm. So next week, the clue I gave on Monday was a bloody good night out. A bloody good night out. So our Clashoween countdowns continue with 1987's Near Dark versus 1996's From Dusk Till Dawn. That's right. We've done witches, zombies, and now it's the turn of a vampire. So... Get your homework done. Near Dark Mm. versus From Dusk Till Dawn. Very exciting, isn't this, Chris? Because you've wanted to do Near Dark for a very long time. And it's only just become available to stream in the UK once more. I believe it's on Amazon. Yeah, it's Um, been a mess. uh, The rights issues have been a night... Yeah, the right night rights issue has been a nightmare with Near Dark, so we we've we've kept putting it off until it was easily accessible. And as you say, it's available to rent on Amazon. And From Dusk Till Dawn is streaming on Paramount Plus at the moment. In the UK. Yeah, and it's also available to buy on Amazon if you're not a Paramount Plus subscriber. So, again, Near Dark versus Dustal Dawn. That is next week's pairing. We'll be back on Monday with part one as we talk Near Dark. Have a lovely weekend as Clash of Eve continues on Monday. Bye-bye. Clash of the Titles is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.